Welcome to Endless, a Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm writer, erstwhile DC Comics editor, and gray lady on a garden visit, Elisa Quitney. And I'm story expert who smells almost subliminally of summer peaches, Lonnie Diane Rich. Today on Endless, we're going to be talking about Season of Miss, a prologue, issue 21 from the Sandman comic book series. Season of Mists, a prologue, was written by Neil Gaiman, penciled by Mike Dringenberg, and inked by Malcolm Jones III. Steve Olaf was the colorist, Todd Klein was the letterer. This issue was edited by Karen Berger, assisted by Tom Pyre, cover by Dave McKean. With each step you take through Destiny's Garden, you make a choice, and every choice determines future paths. At the end of a lifetime of walking, you might look back and see only one path stretching out behind you, or look ahead and see only darkness. Time to wake up. In Season of Mists, a prologue, we open with Destiny, cowled like a monk, walking barefoot through a garden with many paths, all of which must be actively chosen. The Grey Ladies pay him a visit to give him a prophecy that a king will forsake his kingdom and an old battle will begin again, with it all starting in Destiny's garden. Destiny decides he must call a family meeting, and he goes to his gallery where the paintings of his siblings line the walls, and he calls them in, one by one. We learn that there are seven siblings in total, and one of them is not there. The siblings gather together and immediately start fighting, claiming that the absent one would have kept them from fighting. Destiny tells them that this meeting was ordained by the fates and that they're just supposed to meet, and what happens during this meeting will bring on upheaval and great change. Dream wants to leave. He has work to do, but Desire taunts him by bringing up his disastrous romantic past, focusing specifically on what happened to Nada, saying that Dream had that poor girl tortured because she hurt his petty pride. Dream gets angry and stalks off. Death follows him out. Dream gets all pissy about it, saying that he warned Nada of what would happen if she didn't do what he wanted, and still she spurned him. So really, it's her fault. And Death says that Desire was right. It was a shitty thing to do. Dream gets upset, but then decides that Death is right. He decides that he's going to hell to get Nada, and he will either free her or die trying. He leaves to go back to the Dreaming to prepare for his trip. Death goes back inside to talk to the rest of the siblings, saying they should keep chatting to fulfill whatever is supposed to happen at this meeting. But Destiny says it's not necessary. Dream is returning to hell. It has begun. All right, Elisa, here we are in Season of Mist, which opens with a banger. What is your response to this issue? Oh, I I love Season of Mist is, in some ways, it's quintessential Sandman. You know, this is... This is Marilyn Monroe when she went from sort of, you know, everyone's buttery blonde to platinum. This is, you know, mm -hmm. Elvis at peak white rhinestone jumpsuit. <laughs> this is when you think about Sandman, I think you you think about this. It's royal mm -hmm. sibling rivalry. It's a quest. It's gothic architecture and, you know, and death in a stunning black Victorian gown. And this is just the amuse-bouche. Did I say that right? Is it? Yeah. Anyway. A, a moose bouche? Uh, I, no, whatever. You know, I always worry when I say French. But anyway, this is also <laughs> just the, you know, the little appetizer because we're going to hell and there's going to be a cast of a thousand demon extras. And we're going to get to see Dream confront an ex-girlfriend. You know, I, I'm just, Neil has said that he thinks that 
people love Season of Mist because it tickles people where they like to be tickled. And mm -hmm. I'm not ashamed. I am tickled. Okay, here's the thing. This is all story theory. The reason why Season of Mist works is that, hey, this isn't a prologue. It is actually the beginning. It is the inciting incident of this story. So the fact that it's called a prologue, I'm like, it's not a prologue. But anyway, I don't care. I'm not going to sit here and argue semantics because I love the start to the story. A Season of Mist is a banger out of the gate and I cannot wait for the rest of the story to unfold. And I have not gone that far ahead. Because I don't want to be too spoiled. I kind of want to have these, you know, reactions as we go. But it is so hard, Elisa, not to read the rest of this right now. It is really killing me. Um, you know, so anyway, aside from the fact that this is not a prologue, because a prologue is what happens before the story starts. And this is the starting gun. This is the start of the story. This is the destined inspiration for Dream to finally fix what he did to Nada. Not that he can fix it because 10,000 years in hell is always going to be 10,000 years in hell. Um, but I absolutely love that he's he's going there. I love that, you know, Desire started this. Like Desire was was picking on him and giving him a hard time. But they started something that is absolutely the right and proper thing. He needs to go fix this and Desire made it happen. And I kind of love that because everybody's always so like, oh, Desire is such an asshole. I kind of like Desire. Like Desire stirs up the shit, but sometimes the shit needs to be stirred and I kind of like it. So yeah, all of this absolutely, absolutely love it. But before we get too far into that, let's go ahead and talk about this Dave McKean art. Um, the cover is really interesting. It's a series of what looks to me, and again, like, correct me, because as I'm reading this, I'm like, is that a cloud? Is it a, is it a statue? Is it a, like, I don't know what it is, but it looks like various statues of people um, holding up a book. The book itself has a big etch scratched out over the left side, um, which is kind of neat. Um, two of the statues have their faces raised to the light. The arm statue, which is just this disembodied arm that's kind of split in half, broken at the forearm, is holding up the book. It is on the verge of collapse. Um, a larger face has their head cut off at the forehead and some kind of smoky figure coming out of it uh, with what looks like a tortured face in the smoke, but humans are trained to see faces and everything. So that might just be me. I don't know. Um, <laughs> does, does it represent Nada in hell? I don't know. It also looks like it was drawn in kind of a soft charcoal. And so I'm not really sure, like, you know, as a medium, I mean, my God, Dave McKean plays in everything. I mean, you know, talk about the perfect artist for every part of the pig game in, right? Yes. That, that every time we come in, you know, he'll use pictures, he'll use, you know, watercolors he'll, or what looks like that to me anyway. Like there's so many different things. He'll do actual collage with, collage with physical items. Um, his art is so, it is so out of the box. I'm not sure there's a box for Dave McKean. Well, you know, there, I think about what you're saying. And, you know, there's, I think in a lot of Native American myths, they'll talk about every animal has a way, but coyote does not have a way. Coyote uses mm -hmm. whatever way is needed for the particular situation. And mm -hmm. I think that Dave has that kind of versatility where he is yeah. a designer as well as an artist. And he, um, you know, I know that he has obviously been, you know, aware of other things that other artists have done and been able to incorporate those so that he can switch his look and his style. Um, and I think that, you know, again, he was so young 
when he was doing this. I think I was, my math may be wrong. I think he was 29. Mm -hmm. and, oh, my God. Um, and, and yet, you know, he is such a, a virtuoso with it. He was also using some really early computer programs. So he was doing the mm -hmm. painting or the collage, assemblage. He was, you know, he's just a really great draftsman, but he was also using some early computer effects. So I mm -hmm. I am not expert enough to know. Maybe one of these days we can get Dave to to come on the, the show and oh, that'd be amazing. You know, ask yeah. him this point blank. I mm -hmm. think that X is also very much a crossroads. And yeah. I think that what we're seeing here are in some way uh, representations of the endless. And I think that we see that gold eye that is uh, like a cat's eye in the light. And I think that's definitely desire, you know, perhaps pointing us in the direction that desire is an influencer and a, a motivator mm -hmm. of this storyline. Um, I think that broken, that the, there's one that's almost like a broken eggshell. And I thought of Delirium, who's a little mm -hmm. broken and reassembled. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, it's a wonderful cover. And we also should talk about Mike Dringenberg. This is actually Mike's second to last issue, I believe. Oh, He's yeah. going to be back for the epilogue, uh, which is a really nice way of, of framing this whole storyline. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think, really nice to take a moment and just call out all the good things that he brings. Uh, he brings to my mind this downtown grungy glamour to the endless mm -hmm. while he still conveys the grandeur of the, the refectory and the, the gardens. You know, Neil, we're going to see as he now is, we're going to move away from having regular artists. We're going to have regular artists for storylines. And mm -hmm. it really becomes clear how one of Neil's strengths as a writer is his ability to write to an artist's strengths and predilections. And that means, mm -hmm. you know, not just in the specific directions to each artist, but in the subject matter and how the storylines were paired up with specific artists. So I think, you know, it's nice to take a moment and think about what is what is this this nice Venn diagram overlap between Neil and Mike mm -hmm. here? And I think that it's each of the endless has this really unique sense of style and coolness. These mm -hmm. are the really cool kids, you know, or or yeah. beings. And I remember that back in the 80s and 90s, when I was still going to clubs like uh God, I'm trying to remember the names of them, Area and Limelight. <laughs> and, you know, you would have the clubs themselves would have this, you know, cool ambiance. And people used to do a lot of costuming. Maybe they still do. There was a period where people stopped and just went. It, it was much grungier. Mm -hmm. But in the late 80s, there was this way that people costumed themselves for clubbing. And that's the mm -hmm. vibe I get here that everyone has sort of costumed themselves as a particularly cool version of themselves. And mm -hmm. I feel like we've gotten behind the velvet rope into this very uh, unique uh, setting. So, you know, here we've got Death as a Victorian governess with a penchant for velvet and leather. And that's actually in the script's description. And Neil goes oh, into fashion details like it should be tight around here and the arm should have shrunk. But we still see it. And this balloons out. I mean, it's 
And I think I don't remember Neil going into that kind of emphasis on on clothing in other places. I think it is part of where he and Mike are really collaborating on the design of these characters. And mm-hmm. of course, this is the first time that we're seeing Delirium. So, he, you know, Mike is co-creating The Youngest of the Endless. Mm-hmm. Um, so, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just trying to think, was there anything else? Oh, I, I also just wanted to say that I felt like this is high romance here. And and Dringenberg is just so good at capturing that. It's like a little medieval, a little 18th century highwayman, a little Victorian. And it it just um, it feels wonderful in in the way that you know mm-hmm. Mike is a great costuming department and a great art design department here to get this feeling of something that is just both grungy and glamorous. It is really incredible how they're all so beautifully designed, and of course, death. When Death comes in, she's wearing pants. She's just like, whatever. And then Destiny is like, you have to be properly attired. And then she, you know, does this whole cosplay thing. And it's just absolutely incredible. Um, Delirium is much more modern. You know, of course, Despair is naked. It's basically just her in the fishhook ring hanging out. And all the whole time, I'm like, oh, my God, she's cold. Somebody give her a blanket. Poor Despair. Right. Um, But it's so cool. And they are all, you know, kind of representative of different different eras, you know, and I find it interesting that um, that, you know, death almost has kind of a Madonna punk, you know, sort of feel to it, you know, like that kind of Madonna look with uh, the billowy skirt that's see through and all of that kind of stuff. And it was just really, really cool. And I like the way that all of that was designed. I thought it was beautiful. Delirium probably one of my favorites with the way that um, that not just she's designed, but the way that her speech bubbles are designed, which was a question that I wanted to ask you, um, which is the speech bubbles are such beautiful, flowing pastels that sort of flow into each other. And one speech bubble will be like warm and pink and orangey and another one will be cool. And the lettering is so beautifully, uh, you know, uneven in a lot of ways. Um, And I'm just curious, like, is that a collaboration between, I believe it's Todd Klein who did the lettering on this one and Mike Dringenberg, is that, or is that all Todd Klein? Uh, That's all Todd Klein, I believe. And, um, and the, the, colorist Steve Olaf here I think might be doing some yeah, of the effects okay. but mm-hmm. um I I'm so glad you called that out because it is Neil is asking in the scripts for some cool mm-hmm. lettering style but I think he is in this real dance with Todd Klein as he could see how Todd was really rising to the challenge of creating these unique mm-hmm. lettering styles and I I miss it a bit so when we're in the you know the audible performances are wonderful but I miss that visual representation which is it it's something about the comics that feels more magical than than the audible and I suspect than even the um the the Netflix version will be because there's something about that lettering which is magical and you are collaborating with Todd Mm. in 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 having that special effect Todd's won just about every freaking lettering award you can win he is you know oh i can 
I can absolutely see that because that lettering is fantastic. And not to mention Desire's lettering too, yes. which is like difficult to read. And I find that interesting. Oh, and wait till we, Desire. We, yeah. Yeah. I was going like, to say, wait till we get to the angels because then everyone wow. who's gone to school and didn't learn their joined up handwriting is going to have to go back and take some calligraphy. <laughs> <laughs> it's so fascinating and it does add a, a real strong sense of voice for these characters, which I really, really loved and appreciated. And of course, you know, as we talk about the audible version as well, like what's brought in that extra layer when we hear their actual vocal styles and how they sound. And Death has this very kind of like young girl sound and Death and Delirium actually sound quite a bit alike. And I find that really interesting too. Yes, I have to say Death sounds different in my head. Um, Death yeah. doesn't sound exactly like uh, the audible version. I think that I... Which I believe is Kat Denning, right? And she's plays Death. great. Yeah. It's just... She's really great. Yeah. I just started hearing Death in my head, you know, in the 90s. And so mm -hmm. I think my, my Death's a little more of an alto for whatever reason. But... Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. And, um, and, and, you know, for me, in the audible, when this is a complete aside, but... Neil is reading the narration and then mm -hmm. death comes on. And I'm always disconcerted when Dream doesn't sound exactly like Neil, because I guess that's how right. I always heard him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's um, it's a really fun rendition. And again, once again, uh, the Audible will be linked in the show notes. You guys should definitely go grab it. It is absolutely fantastic. Um, one thing quickly before we move away from the art that I really wanted to kind of point out um, in the cover is that we have this left side of the book scratched out with an X, but the X itself is actually scratched into the painting. It's not depicted on the page of the book. So one thing that that really does, and God, I love Dave McKean, like, because what that does is that is kind of a breaking of the fourth wall, right? Like we are actually that X is occurring is happening is being imposed upon the painting itself, at the point where it's the, the left side of the book, but not on the book, not within the world of the painting, that is an external perspective that is coming in from outside of that reality. And I don't know what that means. Like, I literally don't know what that means. I think it's really fascinating. I love that little detail. Like that detail work is just unbelievable. It's so good. I don't understand a lot of what Dave McKean is doing, but I'm here for all of it. I think it's amazing. <laughs> I I think that's a really good, well, we'll have to have a mm -hmm. special you know, episode, hopefully, where we get to ask more of these specific questions. All right. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the ensemble cast and all of our archetypes. What's going on here with that? Well, I, first of all, I have a great fine fondness for ensemble casts. And mm -hmm. I think that there is something very compelling about the fact that we, this is, not only do we get Sandman center stage, but we're getting the Gansik Mishpocha, the whole family. And um, so one thought that I had, I've often used archetypes as jumping off places in my writing when I'm trying to write interactions of a lot of characters. Oh, yeah. And mm -hmm. I think I view um, writing books that call out archetypes the way I view horoscopes <laughs> in that, you know, I don't believe in them, but I find them really fun to play with. 
And mm-hmm. um, so, you know, I was thinking about uh, there's a book that uh, came out of romance called The Hero Heroine Archetypes. I, I think I've mentioned mm-hmm. it before. And there's another uh, book I, I've uh, loved called Eight Characters of Comedy. And there's some ways, not perfectly, but I can see it. You know, death is the smart, patient, logical one. You know, dream is the brooding, cynical one. And we've got the professorial, dry as dust one. Mm-hmm. We get the waif who lies in her, lives in her own universe, you know. And mm-hmm. I think that I'm sort of combining the two different archetype books. But the one which stopped me short is I'm not sure how despair fits in. And I, I was paying mm-hmm. more attention to her this time. I think she's not as glam as the others. And it's easier to overlook her. But everything she said actually made a lot of sense and seemed to me to have a high EQ. So mm-hmm. I, I thought, well, you know, let's see, what is, how are we going to experience her anew with, with the Netflix cast? So I saw that um, Donna Preston is playing mm-hmm. Despair. And I, I just, before this, I looked up a video and found one with her and another uh, comedian uh, as part of a couple driven mad by their sex-crazed neighbors. The neighbors are having so much noisy sex that uh, Donna Preston and her partner, their their lives are utterly uh, disrupted. And I thought, oh, mm-hmm. that's really funny because she is kind of despairing in this. I don't know if that right. was the audition <laughs> tape, but... Um, and I, I think it'll be really interesting to see how in this, you know, generation and with this actor, you know, we're going to see more of or see a different angle on despair. Mm-hmm. But, oh, and one of the thoughts I had is that if despair were to be one archetype, it would kind of be the lovable loser. But the lovable yeah. loser in sitcom is always uh, associated with a sort of futile optimism. And I thought, mm-hmm. well, you can't have despair being optimistic. And then I thought, wait, but that actually kind of fits because you can't you can't be despairing if you haven't had optimism at some point. If you've never hoped that Lucy wouldn't yank the, the football away, you know, you, you right. wouldn't have mm-hmm. the little cloud over your head afterwards. Mm-hmm. So... Very good, yeah. But anyway, the thing about these archetypes is in one way or another it's not just that each of these characters is compelling it's that they really work together in interesting ways as a family and as a Mm -hmm. a family you know they're whether we think of them as a family or even as a group of friends and enemies the way you can get it in high school or in college or just after I I think there's something that I notice now about how there are no parents. You know, in Greek mythology and Roman mythology, um, you get parents somewhere, even if they're mm-hmm. off the scene. We, we, you know, as far as we can tell, the endless have no progenitors. And mm-hmm. I think that that gives me the sense of them as young as well as, you know, mm-hmm. as ancient. It's it's. It's the world of friends in which, you know, it is really a world of peers, whether they're siblings or just friends relating to one another. And um, and I, it, it got me thinking about how in The Golden Girls, which is about women in their 50s and 60s, uh, they, they made the characters seem younger by bringing in a character of a parent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that... 
I, I, I don't know if this makes sense, but I think the fact that the endless are a family, but a family without parents just feels really interesting to me right now. Yeah, no, I like that. And yeah, not being defined. I hadn't really thought about them. They're siblings without parents um, is kind of an interesting thing. And in a way, they kind of parent each other. You know, um, when Dream is down and out in the sound of her wings, death shows up and parents and death actually parents everybody. You know, death is kind of the most stable of them all. The one that you can uh, you can rely on. She's the uh, Wendy. But I love this. <laughs> yeah, right. I love this idea of the optimism that is necessary for despair. You know, so despair at some point must have been something other, must have been something hopeful, because you can't have despair if you don't have hope in the first place to be dashed. You know, the absence of hope um, means that you have to understand its presence in order for that to be effective at all. You know, um, so I think that that's really like an interesting idea. Um, and uh, and I love, you know, all of this stuff. Also, like we've got such incredible world building going on here. Um, we've got seven siblings in total, right? One of them is missing. Um, and I still have not spoiled myself on who is missing, um, but I can't wait for that story to reveal itself. Um, so... It's it's really interesting that we've got all of that, that we've got this, they've got these, you know, sigils that they can call each other, you know, um, and occasionally they all get together for meetings, but they all fight. But the one who's missing would have stopped the fighting somehow, which I think is really interesting, which sort of gives us a sense that this is, um, you know, very older, you know, kind of paternal sort of figure. Um, and the endless can die. Dream says, I'm going to go to hell and I'm either going to get Nada back or I'm going to see you really soon, sister. So she, as death, would have to preside over the deaths of her siblings, which when we go back to facade, when death is talking about, you know, I'm there, I'm the one who's going to turn out the lights, I'm the last, you know, I'm the first and the last, you know, um, the the weight of that. And what that means for death, we haven't really talked about that, but I find that such an interesting little piece of world building. And, you know, and what would we do if Dream died? You know, we had incredible mayhem for 70 years while he was locked up. Like, what would happen if Dream died? How would how would that even work? What would we do without our stories, without Morpheus, the changer of shapes? You know, um, I find that really so fascinating. Yeah, there is there there's a lot of world building here. There are a lot of Easter eggs. I'm sort of, you know, taping my mouth on on some of this. But um, you know, I love even in in the seating arrangement, you can see there's a missing chair at the table. Mm -hmm. And in the script, Neil specifies who sits where. Um, by mm -hmm. the way, I love the little flappy robe things, like the bat monks mm -hmm. that are serving the food and wine. Um, I think Neil call them the Destinyettes in the Highbender book. <laughs> um, there's other Easter eggs. The sparkly girl that Desire says lived on the pretty plain with all the sparkly lights. I didn't look this up, but my my memory says that she uh, makes a cameo in Sandman Overture, which comes uh, ah. much later. Um, but yes, I mean, I think obviously we, we were going to talk about this more, but we learn two contradictory things here. We learn that mm -hmm. on the one hand, the endless can die um, as individuals, but mm -hmm. um, we've heard some hints, I think, already about how, what that would mean. But then we also learn that 
your archetype, you know, can evolve. So in the, in the hero heroine archetypes, there are two kinds of archetypes. I think there there's, you know, you, your characters solidly their archetype, or they could be a hybrid of two archetypes, or they can be an evolving archetype. And I was thinking about, I don't know how you would describe this, but Delirium, obviously, who was once Delight, is, it's not an evolution. It's its really a, a complete transformation. Yeah. And what is death, if not a transformation, right? I mean, in the tarot, when you pull the death card, it's not literally that somebody's going to die. It's that you're going to transform into this new form. And considering that, you know, we can't exist, people can't exist without dreaming, you know, without dream, that if he goes to hell, and then he dies, he becomes something other, but still has to fulfill that purpose. It's a really interesting idea, you know, and I kind of I like that there's, there's space for exploration there, even if we don't do it in the story as as a reader kind of thinking through this world, there are some things for you to think about knowing that that's a reality, that this is a risk that he is taking in order to to fix a wrong, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but one of the things that I love about um, about all this, that we have this moment, right? Let us pause for a moment and just think about all of these. And and so Neil goes through and introduces each one and each one gets their own some, somewhat monochromatic kind of um, uh, panel. Um, and the thing that I find really interesting is that for almost all of them, we get a sense of smell and shadow, two things that when, you know, when we describe you know, entities, we don't think in terms of smell and shadow. But we have this, he goes back to it for almost all of them, desire smells almost subliminally of summer peaches and casts two shadows, one black and sharp edged, the other translucent and forever wavering, like heat haze. And I think that that is such a wonderful description. And and for the writers out there, I think that this is one of those circumstances where you think to talk about how people look, how they sound, you know, how they carry themselves. We don't think in terms of smell and we don't think in terms of shadow to be character descriptors. It's such a wonderful space to go into. Um, We go into despair. Despair doesn't have a smell, but her shadow does. Like that is... Such an interesting thing. Musky and pungent like the skin of a snake. Destiny smells of dust and libraries of night. He leaves no footprint. He casts no shadow. Um, I love that. Uh, Delirium smells of sweat, sour wines, late nights, and old leather. Her shadow shape and outline has no relationship to that of any body she wears, and it is tangible like old velvet. Um, I love all of that. We go into Delirium was once delight. We have the two different colors of her eyes. One is vivid green spattered with silver flecks that move. Her other eye is vein blue. Um, God, I love all of that. Um, For dream, no smell is mentioned, but his shadow is. He casts a human shadow when it occurs to him to do so, that his shadow is consciously affected 
not something that just sort of happens as a consequence of light, you know. Um, but we do talk about dream accumulating names. He appears to be the only one that accumulates a number of identities that he goes through. And he broods about death taking human form for one day every century. And that is a story that I definitely want to hear about how she goes and lives as a human so that she can know what it is to die as a human. I think that that's really beautiful. Um, and then there's death. Clearly drawn, black and white, no description at all. Just, and then there is death. And that's it. Um, I think that this particular approach to describing these characters is so beautifully done. And so like one of the things that I encourage writers to do is that in when you describe a character, like try to stay away from sight and sound, which are the big ones. Those are the ones that we go for. What do they look like? What do they sound like? And think about other qualities that you can talk about that can give us a, a level of characterization and a sense of who they are from an unexpected sensory place. I really love that. I think it's so cool. Yeah, I I think also that a lot of the description, um, I mean, what we're getting is the description that cannot be conveyed by the art. So, you know, what mm -hmm. can be conveyed by the art is being conveyed by the art. We are getting mm -hmm. these other elements. And in terms of the art, I think a lot of attention is being paid to the ways in which these characters choose to reveal themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that's another thing that always interests me as a writer. You know, it's less interesting to me, you know, the exact shade of blue that a character's eyes are than the fact that they might, uh, you know, decide that bright blue eyeshadow is the answer and never stop, you know, wearing it even after it's out of fashion. <laughs> the, you know, the, the, the things that we choose are are more mm -hmm. telling yes. details. Um, but, you know, it's also interesting to me. So here's this moment where I think, you know, Neil saw that we've got all these characters and he's going to take a pause and really introduce them, get, get us mm -hmm. a little more closely acquainted with them. And when I was working with him on the book King of Dreams, Sandman King of Dreams, uh, I thought, well, we should just do the same thing. You know, we've got this gallery. And I remember Neil saying, yeah, and let's, you know, we've gotten so many pieces of glorious artwork since then. Let's, you know, mm -hmm. make a selection of all these different artists. So we did that and I handed it in to the editors. <laughs> and this, these were not my DC editors. These were uh, book editors. Mm -hmm. That it was, uh, I can't remember, was this, I, I forgot which publisher it was, but I know that the, yeah. the publisher was collaborating with DC. So I get these notes and, you know, each entry is like got lots of red pen, but, you know, nothing like the horrified, indignant response to, and then there is death. Uh, there uh -huh. was, you know, this is insufficient and how can you, you know, we're paying you, why are you not writing more words for us. And I wrote back a note. That was all Neil's writing. And <laughs> I get the note back. Oh, actually, you know, it works really well. It, it's great. Uh -huh. It's uh, it's perfect. Never mind. It's a beautiful use of negative space. It's a beautiful, and that's something else too. Like as writers, we are so enamored with the words that allowing a space where we don't use the words, where we just let it sit, you know, that is an incredibly bold stroke. Yes. Um, and I can see why when you're, especially if you're talking to book people, 
you know, their first response is going to be to be uncomfortable with that. And I think that we are going to be uncomfortable with that because it requires us to fill in the space. And then that's a thing that you can do to get your audience to lean in which I think is is a really beautiful thing that you do with negative space. And it can be very difficult because as writers and creators, we want to fill every space and like define everything. When you pull back and you let your reader lean in, they're going to be more engaged, you know, because they are actively collaborating on this with you. When you say, and then there is death, it is up to the reader to figure out what that means. And then they become not an audience member, but a collaborator in the building of this thing. It's beautiful. It's, it's, it's the Lubitsch touch, you know, it's that, <laughs> it's that. So the, the director uh, and writer, Billy Wilder, always talked about Ernst Lubitsch, the director, who had a great mm-hmm. way of elegantly and minimally conveying things, uh, you know, where the, the viewer needed to put the pieces together in their head. So I mm-hmm. think definitely Neil's got a lot of Lubitsch touch going on here. It, it takes a lot of confidence. It takes a lot of confidence to be able to do that. You know, I mean, that's a bold move. Um, and I really, really like it. Um, and that's the kind of thing that like as writers, you know, building up your your sense of confidence in in how you write, how you tell a story to where you can kind of do something like that and be OK with it and not monkey with it. Like that's a really, really bold thing to do. And I, I love that as a lesson in writing where it's not, you know, sometimes less absolutely is more. And it's it's v- really very cool. I love it. And I love that you said Neil wrote it and they were like, no, 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 it's great. You know? <laughs> um, but also like, you know, yeah, it may have taken them a moment to to realize what was happening there and to feel comfortable with that, that negative, open, empty space. I love that. I think that's really great. Um, okay, so now like uh, from the moment Nada came on a page, I have been complaining about this shit. I have been like, this is terrible. I have hated everything with Nada. I hated when he went into hell the first time, you know, to get his stuff. And then there's this woman who is like, I've needed, uh, you know, I need to be forgiven so that you can let me out. And he just walks right by her and is like, no. Um, And then not knowing what it was she could possibly have done, thinking like, what a terrible thing did this woman do to deserve being in hell? We get to that story and oh, oh, what she did? Nothing. She tried to save her people. She tried to protect her people. And then that's why he put her in. I have been furious about that since um since the the uh, prologue for uh as prologue for doll's house yeah um so i hated all of that it was been driving me crazy i've wanted this resolution um and i love that both desire and death take a chunk out of dream for what he did you know but damn it took y'all long enough i understand ten thousand years is not a long time for you but nada it's a human woman like, you know, she's just been sitting there getting tormented in hell this whole time. Um, but I love this thing. I love that we start off with a story arc with a clear stated goal. Either I shall bring Nada out of hell or I shall see you again soon, my sister. See you for one final time. Um, I teach that a protagonist's goal should be active, specific, personal, and achievable to start a strong story. And this hits all of them on the head in one swipe. I love that. Um, I'm only sad I didn't read it in time to include as an example in How Story Works, which is my book where I talk about goals and how they work. I would love to put that in, but maybe in the next edition, I'll be able to get that in. I think it's just great. I love I love the powerful start of story here. It's so great. I, 
I absolutely agree. And I think that these days there's often, I think, a bit of a push to make protagonists really likable and admirable. And mm -hmm. that can make it harder, as you know, to, to have a satisfying arc. You know, Morpheus is an ass. Desire is also yeah. an ass, but they make a good point about his, his assholery, yeah. about Morpheus's assholery. And, you know, it is going to lead us on a quest where, you know, unusually, I am actually interested in the result of it. I, I cannot tell mm -hmm. you, whenever Marvel characters go looking for tesseracts or knights go looking for holy the MacGuffin, grails whatever it is i yes. you know it's it's for me it is just like that moment where i know that i have misplaced the doodad and i don't really mm -hmm. need the doodad but it's bugging me that i can't find the doodad and mm -hmm. i i just to have an interpersonal an interpersonal goal. And it's not that he's looking for Nada because he realizes he loved her mm -hmm. and he wants to be with her. It's because his identity as an honorable being is at stake. Mm -hmm. And identity goals are, are really powerful. Identity stories are amazing. You know I love that, right? You yeah. know, so here we have, and again, active, specific, personal, and achievable. And that's the problem with the MacGuffin. The MacGuffin is, okay, for those of you who don't know what a MacGuffin is, um, a MacGuffin is when there is one item and then two people are fighting for it, only one person can possess it. So that is basically narrative conflict. And again, narrative conflict, for those of you in the back, uh, narrative conflict is goal-based conflict that um, that actually uh, is, supports the structure for a story. All of this is in How Story Works. You can go find it wherever you're but it's all, sold, and it's but, also um, often yeah. a thing you don't intrinsically care about. Like, wasn't it named for like the right. bag of money in Hitchcock's? Yeah. Is it uh, Psycho? I think that I think that was it. I, I, but it's just a MacGuffin is just a MacGuffin. It's just a thing that people fight over, you know, and it doesn't really matter. And so the problem with a MacGuffin, the thing that's great about a MacGuffin for writers is that it's easy conflict, just add water. But the thing that sucks about a MacGuffin is that it's very hard to make it personal, right? Because it's a thing like it has to mean something. It has to be personal. Otherwise, we're not going to be invested in it. And so when everybody's chasing the Tesseract, like, great, okay, whatever. How is it personal? Like, how is this? And I understand that, like, superheroes, their job is to protect people. And so they've got it there. We have wonderful, like, as far as stakes go in those narratives, the stakes are huge. There's, you know, people are going to die, yada, yada, all that stuff. But in the end, what we want to see is we want narratives that have personal elements to them. When the more deeply personal something gets, the more invested we are. And here we are where, um, where Dream's identity is at stake. And let's not forget, Dream accumulates names. He accumulates identities, right? He is an he is a walking identity story. And identity is actually one of the wells of vulnerability, right? It's one of the spaces where when our identity gets threatened, that is a huge level of vulnerability that also imbues this with that sense of that personal you know, investment. So this as a starting gun for this story is about as perfect as it gets. You know, he's on a quest, but the quest is personal. It's deeply personal. It's tied to his own shame. Shame and vulnerability are huge access points for character. All of this comes together. It is absolutely a perfect starter. And we get to it. You know, we get to it, right? Like we go in there, we're not monkeying around. You know, we get all these people in there and pretty much the first thing, we have a little bit of time with Delirium, but then Desire comes in, just needling at, at Morpheus, trying to see if they can get him to break. Um, it's 
kind of amazing. Like I I love, I know every time I come in here, I'm like, this one's my favorite. But I think that like so far, this might be my favorite. You know, it's also perfect that this one, you know, comes right in the aftermath of Hanukkah, Christmas, Kwanzaa, mm-hmm. and New Year's because yeah. everyone who has been allowed by COVID protocols has been able to get together with their loved ones and remember how difficult that is. It can be incredibly challenging. So as we're talking about the challenge of of being with family and, of course, being one of the endless, um, I wanted to spend a little time with delight and delirium. We talked about this a little bit, um, but I'm kind of fascinated by the ways in which delirium was once delight. And there is this sense that delight taken too far can turn you to delirium. You know, that um, that delight, um, you know, unadulterated um, becomes something it's like, and you know, a virtue taken to excess can become a vice, you know, too much of a good thing. And does this to her where she is delirium. I love that her eyes are different colors. And again, like we have the vivid green with gray flecks that move or with silver flecks that move about, which I absolutely love that sense of something cracked you know, and it's just kind of of broken. Um, And then her other eye is vein blue. That's deoxygenated blood, which of course, you know, comes from the heart. It's been, it's, it's had all of its oxygen taken out. And then that becomes that, uh, that blue eye. And so I love her again, as I said, the art of her speech bubbles is so beautiful. Like again, I've never gotten a tattoo, but every time I look at the art in Sandman, I'm like, I just want Sandman tattoos. Like, they're just so beautiful. (laughs) There's so many beautiful things happening here, um, which I absolutely love. Um, But Delirium is the dark side of delight, I think, is is really interesting. And then we get into this place where in Delirium's intro, uh, we have the poet Coleridge claimed to have known her, but he was a liar, so we can't trust his word. And of course, Samuel Taylor, Taylor Coleridge was an 18th century. English poet who suffered from opium addiction, um, which he fell into trying to treat chronic pain from childhood diseases and and, um, bouts that he had as a kid. Um, So I find that um, all of it to be so incredibly dense and beautiful. And I just want to spend time with delirium. I just kind of want to see what her life is like. And this whole thing, she says, I met a boy you know, and I made him feel this way, right? I shouldn't like him. I met a girl who said I was beautiful. And so I made her feel happy all the time, you know, so she would feel happy all the time. And happy all the time is what started this problem, delirium. Happy all the time is what made you what you are. <laughs> yeah. You know? um, so I find that whole thing such, and again, like we just touch on it. We spend very little time with delirium, but delirium is really close to stealing the whole show. She is such a compelling character. And, you know, it It struck me that in superhero comics, you do have this tradition of the placeholder for the younger reader. So with Batman, mm-hmm. we've got Robin. But, you know, you might aspire to be as cool as Dream or as Death. Um, you might even want to be as arch and sinister as Desire. But here is Delirium, who is you know, just at the point where leaving the innocence of childhood into that, that feeling you get when you enter puberty and you feel 5,000 years old already Mm -hmm. because you're disillusioned and yet you still feel very raw and exposed. 
She's the only one of the Endless, you know, who we're told is so radically transformed from an earlier incarnation. And that means her her name, which is really her function, has has mm-hmm. changed as well. Yeah. Um, it's it's interesting to me that uh, first of all, in the script, there's this description of how the the image of her is kind of like the image that a mother would show of you know the kid that's gone punk and say, look, <laughs> this is my kid. You know, when the kid is still with the long hair and no piercings, mm-hmm. and you know, as opposed to the kid who has transformed. And at another point, uh, Neil wrote, I just tried this with her angry and antagonistic, and it didn't work. So instead, let's make her nervous and ill at ease, eyes forever searching the room, quite terrified, really. And I think, you know, this is a, a wonderful window on the writer's process, because as much as you know about your world, and Neil knows a lot, he knew, I think, what he wanted to do with this character, but his first punk rebellious version of this character didn't work. And then mm-hmm. he he didn't despair, <laughs> uh, no pun intended. You know, <laughs> he uh, he went for a different approach and we got this mm-hmm. version of Delirium uh, who is yeah. so incredibly appealing. Um, I also just love the description of her stepping out of the picture of the other little girl who used to be her, mm-hmm. uh, which is so poignant. And I think for all of us who used to be someone different, yeah. Um, I remember that my mom at one point gave me the quote from Isadora Duncan, you were wild here once, don't let them tame you. And it's the way in which sometimes as children, we are more confident, more wild, more Mm -hmm. um, ourselves in one in one version. And then puberty is when we start letting the world in. Yeah. And that that can be a lot. The other thing that I just love here is this wonderful Easter eggishness that is also it's an Easter egg and it's also this perfect character moment where delirium says Mm -hmm. i know lots of things things about us things not even he knows that is destiny do you Mm -hmm. and it made me realize that there are all of these untold delirium stories Mm -hmm. so it's you know that she is on the one hand this youngest of the endless and on the other hand she's ancient and she has she has access to that wild mind you know, opium poet stuff Mm -hmm. that none of the other endless access. Yeah, which, you know, takes you out of the world, but it also pulls you so far out that you can see things that other people can't see from that perspective, um, which is really interesting. And so the the delight delirium divide, I find um, kind of fascinating. And I just want comics with her in them like all the time I just want to see those comics um one of the other things I I noticed is that again like you and I are both listening to the audible version which is incredible and definitely highly recommended um so but one of the things I noticed is that in this um comic book issue as originally published the pronoun used for um for desire was it um and then in audible we've moved into they and I really do appreciate um, that we that we moved today that like it at the time, you know, was a pronoun that that, you know, 
people maybe were thinking about that we hadn't really spent much time kind of thinking about um, what the proper pronouns are and what the, the usage should be as we move out of this kind of gender binary mindset that we'd always been in, you know? Um, and so that is a process, you know, and that's something that you go through. But I really do appreciate that in the audible version, we've moved to the much more human they. Um, and I just wanted to say that I, I appreciated that change. I thought that it was a nice, you know, a, a, like acknowledgement that, that the world has changed and that what we really mean is, you know, that we're going to humanize this, somebody who is, is gender non-binary, which I really loved. I, I think desire might object to being called human, but I take your point. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, I mean, no, again, no, just... every every sentient <laughs> character is coded as human. And so we can human and dehumanize them in many ways, but they are essentially human. Yeah. As, no, far, I, as, I, as far as how we read them. Yes. Of course, <laughs> I was just being silly. I, yeah. I think, you know, at some point as writers, we are not mm -hmm. going to even have the ability to... Uh, to revise our own work. But one thing you yeah. can say is if you look at a writer and they have a history of revisiting their work and, you know, and, and revising in a certain way, mm -hmm. you can have a guess about how they would react to being told, you know, that, that you know, in, in a reaction to a, a newer uh, societal mm -hmm. shift. I think that we, you know, a, a lot of times people can feel called out and blamed by not, not seeing what they didn't see. Yeah. And, uh, and I think, you know, once, you know, the, 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 the delight in being young is that you haven't <laughs> had enough time to do anything but criticize what went before. And, you know, then <laughs> you, you should get to the point where you are able to critique yourself. I, you know, also noticed mm -hmm. that when it came to the audible version of the, the Grey Ladies, uh, yeah. one of them had what I believe is a Jamaican accent. And so mm -hmm. it made them more clearly uh, culturally and, and presumably ethnically less diverse. White. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> less white. A little um, less white. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, so I... I I liked all of that. And I, I like mm -hmm. the evolution of this. Yeah. And I mean, that's the thing. Like, you know, any of us who have been around for more than a minute, you know, um, here before we were made aware, you don't know what you don't know. And when you know, you make the changes and you move on. You know, you can't beat yourself up for what you didn't know. And we shouldn't be beating up other people for what they don't know. At the same time, we do need to talk about it um, because that awareness is really important um, in our stories to take kind of that sting out for somebody who is non-binary, who reads this, you know, who knows that they are respected as as human people, you know, um, and that that the updates are reflecting that desire. And I think that that's really great. Um, so I just appreciate that that update. I thought that that was uh, that's a nice detail that I personally appreciated. Um, okay, so now we get to go into the behind the scenes area of Lucien's Library. And everybody, you know, Lucien's Library does have the potential for spoilers. So uh, careful where you walk. Um, and if that's something <laughs> that you are not into, you can skip ahead for, I don't know, five or eight minutes. Um, but uh, all right. So tell me, tell me, tell me all the good behind the scenes stuff. Okay, so um, one of the things that I think since we've been talking so much about Audible mm -hmm. is, you know, it's a fun fact that a lot of what informs the Audible narration, the stuff that Neil mm -hmm. himself reads, 
are the original scripts. And so what, you know, began life as art direction to the specific artist is mm-hmm. now part of the narration. And so in a way, it's it's Neil speaking to you and to the artist in mm-hmm. your head as you paint this, this scene. Um, and what we're not getting are in the scripts, Neil mm-hmm. has these very personal asides. And, you know, at times he is talking about, well, I tried it like this and it didn't work mm-hmm. like that. It's late in the afternoon. I've got a cold. <laughs> I, I think at one point he was still smoking. So there's like, I've just lit mm-hmm. another cigarette. And and it's funny, I'd forgotten that there were all of these things in the scripts. And I think about what that adds. Obviously, you can take mm-hmm. that too far and the artist, you know, might say, wow, that's a lot of personal stuff to go through. But it's, <laughs> it's, I think that connecting, you know, just as you and I, uh, today before we started the podcast, we just took some time to just talk as people. And that may yeah. not seem like it's part of the creative process, but actually it is. It is allowing mm-hmm. that time to connect whenever you're collaborating with someone is um, is is really part of it. And, you know, I I think that it, it gives that sense of a lot of give and take. Mm-hmm. When I've taught uh, graphic novel, comic book writing. When I teach children, I always say, if, if you're the right, well, you know, children tend to be the writer and the artist. So I don't have to say this. I, you know, but I, mm-hmm. I say, you know, if you're working, if you're writing for someone else, remember, they're not just your hands. But with adult writers, I can be much clearer and say, the artist is not your bitch. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, you, you really want to think of them as an equal partner. Um, not as not as Calliope, um, <laughs> or as Desire calls her Carousel. Right. <laughs> um, so another little tidbit: we you discussed Coleridge. Um, the the title for this it comes from Keats. Um, the mm-hmm. the poem to Autumn, season of mists and mellow fruitfulness. And it really fits with this high romantic tone. You know, mm-hmm. this storyline is so sensual, emotional, regretful, resigned. And um, Keats, who died at 25 of tuberculosis, or as they called it mm-hmm. then, consumption, wrote, Where are the songs of spring? I, where are they? Think not of them. Thou hast thy music too. While barred clouds bloom the soft dying day and touch the stubble plains with rosy hue. Wow. So 25. Uh, 25. <laughs> so, you know, and I think it kind yeah. of is fitting that this high romantic we think of Keats is both ageless mm-hmm. and, and very young. Um, all right, two more little tidbits. One mm-hmm. is the initial seed. Um, Neil, before he had a title for this episode, uh, wrote that, you know, he'd done some signings in October at a, a bookstore called The Outer Limits. And a couple asked him if we would ever see the family of the endless at dinner. And he said, no, I, I don't think we will. And uh, and that was the planting of the seed. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's interesting just how, you know, the, the first reaction was, no, no, we won't. Except, <laughs> And then maybe we will. Maybe yeah. we will. Yeah. I have a friend who's uh, the writer, Carol Goodman. She says her initial mm-hmm. reaction to any editor's note is, no, impossible and wrong. And then, yes. well, mm-hmm. maybe. 
if I were, and finally, I think I could do it like this. <laughs> yes, that is exactly the process. That is exactly the process. And then very rarely will I get a note from an editor where I'm like, nah, that's not right. You know, but I mean, like most of the time I'm like, ooh, but if I did it, I could do this. You know, there's a first moment where it's like, no, it's perfect as it is. And then you start thinking about it and you get that creative kind of work going. And that whole collaborative thing, I mean, as you're talking about the, um, you know, the notes to the to the artist, you know, in the script. Um, the idea that a script is an internal document, you know, it is an internal document for the people who are working on it, not for the audience. They are going to create what the audience sees. Um, but the idea that there are these things in um, within the script that that no one will ever see, but that so formulate um, what actually happens and what actually goes to the audience in that collaborative and in collaborative scripts are only made for collaborative media. You don't need a script if you're not doing a collaborative thing. Um, and so this this collaborative work that comes from a script and the idea that I mean, because in a you know, in a film script, you generally don't see stuff like that. You'll have little things, you know, you'll have little ways that things are phrased that are beautifully, um, you know, kind of translated into film. Um, but the idea, I love the idea that there's these little personal notes, you know, this, we, I started out with delirium being all angry. That's not working. Let's just go to this, you know, let's make her scared and timid and all of that kind of stuff. Um, I love all of that. Like, I think that it's, it's really interesting and it does like that, when people are collaborating on a project together, it's not all business. They need to be connected as people. And you do your best work when you view your collaborators as people that you are working with and that your relationship is part of the flavor that goes in the soup, you know? Like, yes. And people may not be able to identify it, but that relationship, that connection, that personal thing is definitely going to flavor the work itself. And so I love that. It never occurred to me that there would be these little personal notes. I love it. Well, and it's it's like, it's the small talk. It's the foreplay. It's the doctor mm -hmm. taking a moment to say, how's the family before they start, <laughs> you know, like, you know, right. feeling mm -hmm. your lymph node. Um. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, we do so often culturally uh, separate out the business and the personal. Um, and I think it's something that, you know, started, um, I, I don't know exactly, like during the Industrial Revolution, I guess, is don't bring your problems to work. Don't bring your personal self to work. Keep it separate, you know. And I think that is something that is impossible to do. And now that, you know, we've all gone through this very weird where the, the business came into our homes, into our personal space, out of necessity from the pandemic, for those of us who were lucky enough to be able to work from home um, and keep our jobs. We, uh, you know, we had to, we, we had people at home seeing the cat jump up on my shoulder during the middle of a meeting and things that would not happen in the office place in which you get a much more personal feel of, of people at home and who they are. Um, and the fact is, is that you cannot ever really separate out who you are personally from who you are professionally. I think that is probably most obvious when you're working in a creative medium, yeah. you know, as opposed to making whatever widgets you might be making. But as a daytime widget maker, I can say that that personal relationship does affect the ways in which, you know, we all work together collaboratively on whatever project it is that we're doing. Um, so yeah, I, I love that. Sorry, I went on a about that no I love it and I thought yeah and can I also say I, I think your cat may be desire so <laughs> my cat may well be my those golden well be. eyes so I want to say that 
I have been really enjoying reading your book about writing. And one of the things that I am enjoying so much, first, I, I always have Dumbo's Feather about writing books. And mm -hmm. I keep thinking, this is the one that is going to break through my fear and anxiety <laughs> and inability to figure out what I'm doing. And mm -hmm. I've, I've begun to see how many of the books just circle the runway. They have perhaps some good thoughts, mm -hmm. but there is just so much detritus that I want to get landscapers in. And mm -hmm. it's the opposite. This is just everything you say feels useful and wise but there isn't too much there 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 there's no weird ornamental plant distracting me from the thing <laughs> i need to pluck and take home with me Mm -hmm. Oh, well, thank you. I'm really glad because that's exactly what I wanted um, it to be. How Story Works is available now. So anybody who's listening can go out and get it. Audible, Kindle, and there's a paperback version. Um, and uh, basically, it is the summary of my life's work in like 40,000 words. It's not a lot. There's not a lot. Because one of the things that um, that always bothers me about a lot of writing books is that there is a lot of stuff in there that isn't really universal, you know, that isn't, it doesn't apply to everybody, right? And to every story. So this actually, the basics of storytelling, the basics of how it works um, is uh, applicable to everything. You write a comic book, you're writing a video game, you're writing a novel, you're writing a film, whatever it is that you're writing, you can apply these basic principles. So what I did was I went and I stripped out everything that was universal to all stories and look just at that. So this is a very simple, very direct kind of guide. It is basically my last 20 years. I, I signed a contract for two books with Warner Books in 2003, and I had written one of them without thinking I was ever going to sell it. So I wasn't really thinking about it. And then I had another one and I was like, how I don't know how to do this. I don't know how story works. So I spent like the last, you know, almost 20 years trying to figure that out, teaching it. And let me tell you, there is nobody who's going to like, you know, tear apart a theory more than college sophomores. So I was teaching college sophomores how to write a 15 minute clean script, you know, and in doing that, realize that these are the things that matter and these are the things that don't. You know, and these are the things that you can customize. And that's the other thing, too, is that these are all principles of storytelling. You can customize it to whatever kind of story you want to tell. Doesn't matter what genre, doesn't matter what it is. So um, so this is the big thing that I've been working on and like killing myself on for the last few months. It's done. It's ready to go. It is out there. So for anybody who is a writer, definitely go and grab a copy. Um, but one of the things that I really love about our conversations, um, you know, when we're off the air, you know, is that I talk about what I'm working on and you talk about what you're working on. And I kind of wanted to bring that in because we are talking about writing. Um, and so many of the listeners who come from Chipperish, you know, um, are have been listening to me for years because I talk about writing. And so I kind of want to talk to you about the stuff that's going on with you and the stuff that you've been working on lately. We've talked a little bit about that behind the scenes. We haven't talked about it on mic. So what's up with you? Yeah, so I can't say too much right now, but I am uh, finishing up issue four of a five issue comic uh, mm -hmm. miniseries. I call it my Sex in the City meets Golden Girls by way of the Twilight Zone. And oh my God, I cannot <laughs> wait to read this. I am so excited. So what's it? Do we have any information about it? Any title? Anything? I, I don't think I can say yet. It's something I'm uh -huh. doing with Alain Morissette, who's uh, we, we worked on a, an Edgar Allan Poe <laughs> story together for Snifter of Terror. And yeah. um, it's 
it's been really useful to be doing this podcast and doing this deep dive into the Sandman as I'm writing mm-hmm. because it it definitely, you know, reminds me about how how much you want to do things with the Lubitsch touch, how you want to, yeah. you know, you want to collaborate and you you want to leave room for for collaborating with the reader as well. So that mm-hmm. that's all I'll say for now. But no, it's been it's been fun doing that. All right. Well, guys, I am not going to allow uh, any any time to go by where I'm not bugging Elisa for all of that information so that when those comics are available, you can go out and grab your copy. I know I will be going out and grabbing mine immediately because I'm very excited just by the tease, just by that combination. And we've talked about it a little bit in the background. And I absolutely am very, very excited for this. But before we let everybody go today, Elisa, I want to know in the season of Miss Prologue, what is your favorite page? I may choose a different page tomorrow, but today I'm choosing the first page and just the the conceit that Destiny's Garden is filled with choices. Mm -hmm. We're forced to slow down and really walk with the most monkish of the endless here. And Mm -hmm. while it isn't as flashy or as exciting as what follows, this prologue to the prologue, well, okay, the inciting incident, it's filled with food for thought. And I think it makes a lot of poetic sense, the idea that what is fated and preordained relies Mm -hmm. on the choices that you make and keep making. Yeah, no, it's really interesting when you think about destiny and, you know, and the choices that you make and free will and what all of that means. And we get all of that philosophy on one page, which is so very, very cool. Yeah. Now, what about you? I mean, do I... it's got to be delirium, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The page where Desire takes delirium's butterfly and runs it through the candle flame, killing it. Um, I absolutely adore the way delirium's speech bubbles are drawn. Um, I love this interaction. I love the way death comes in and kind of makes it okay and walks the butterfly to the other side, you know, just kind of taking a moment to do that. It is such a level, a lovely interplay of sibling relationships with the antagonistic sibling and then the caretaker sibling. And it's just so beautifully expressed on this page. I love it. It is. I, I feel like I'm, I've been saying Lubitsch touch a lot, but that yeah. whole idea that the butterfly, this is what delirium does with a butterfly. This is what desire does. And this is what death does is yeah. just, yeah, that's a fine choice. <laughs> it is very, very cool. All right. So what's your favorite part of the whole thing? Oh, you know, this, I, I, I think this is my inner 13 year old, but the moment where death is... <laughs> Oh, big sigh, forced to put on her posh frock, and it's just oh so divine. I mm-hmm. And I just love Dream's dig at her right after. We're like, oh, dressed appropriately for once, my sister. <laughs> and, and, you know, she sticks out her tongue at him and presumably stamps her foot on his. It's so incredibly cute. Um, I love when Death just takes a chunk out of Dream's ass for what he did to Nada. Like, this is the <laughs> moment that I have been waiting for. It is like Death is speaking for me and being like, no, what you did was super shitty. She just tried to protect her people. She was just trying to do the right thing. And you made it all about you, you know. Um, and there's something about that that I just think is really fun. And I'm very, very glad to see something that has been driving me crazy from the moment I was made aware of it, actually textually acknowledged. It is, it's very nice. I like it a lot. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, connect with the show on Twitter 
Follow at Chipperish and use the hashtag EndlessPodcast. Or send your comments or questions to Endless at Chipperish.com. This episode of Endless was brought to you by the Chipperish media producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why Endless is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to Abby, Alice, Christina, Erica, Jane, Kevin, Kristen, Michael, Rose, Sarah, Shelley, and Stephania. And this week's special message for our power producers... Drink the wines, eat of the fruit of my garden, talk. To find out how you too can support Chipperish Media, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Other ways to show your support? Write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or go to a big family gathering and tell your brother off, but good for being a big jerk. Our editor, Jack Cram, is on a well-deserved vacation this week, but I cannot have an episode without a shout to Jack. So Jack, oh, come on, hang around for a while. What's some lost time? We've got all the time there is. We'll be back next time with Season of Mist, Chapter 1, Issue Number 22 of the Sandman series. Until then, he is returning to hell. It has begun. It has begun.